Welcome to another episode of Improv Exchange with Leander Young, where we dig into conversations with seasoned musicians to discuss their life, art, and the faith of jazz as they see it. In this episode, we interview a producer and radio host from Ireland, Dermot Rogers. Hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Improv Exchange. Today, we have Dermot Rogers with us. Sir, thank you for joining us from Ireland. Please tell the people about yourself and then we'll get into it. Well, thanks for having me. It's it's a pleasure. And I, I think I'm going to enjoy this and look forward to it. So, yeah, so so thanks for having me on the show. I'm based in Ireland. Uh, I recently reactivated a small jazz label, Olivia Records, and uh, which arose out of a casual conversation in COVID. And the, I guess the background to that is I, I do a, a, a weekly late night eclectic music show. I'm a big jazz fan, but also into lots of other different types of music. And one thing led to another, as often happens in life. And hey, presto, we've re- now released two albums on the Olivia label, one of which is a re-release and one of which was a previously unreleased album that we discovered uh, when the kind of reactivation, let's call it research, started. Um, and my aim really, apart from talking about the albums that we have released, my aim is that Olivia Records is going to release a new release slash re-release up to eight to ten other albums over the next couple of years. That's the that's the that's the plan. Okay. First of all, I can honestly say I did enjoy the albums. I did like the standards that were played on there. Now the first question I have to ask is like the re-releasing of jazz music. I personally believe that does harm to the industry. Oh really? Yes, because it suppresses a lot of the new music. And then, yeah. truthfully, I love Wave. That song alone, I love it. It's yeah. like 20 different versions that I can honestly say I love. You have right. a really good one with doubled guitars. By the way, you got to tell me how you found that. <laughs> and, okay, okay. But you don't think that does sometimes more harm right. than good, especially when this came out in, what, 78 originally? 77 originally. It was recorded 76, November 76. And then... Uh, out on its own, which is the solo guitar record from Louis Stewart, it was recorded. It was released in '77, and the the second album, the one we just released a few weeks ago, "Some Other Blues," which is a duo album with a, a piano player, uh, was recorded a few months after that solo guitar album. Uh, so, but it's an interesting point that you make because one of the things that I'm very conscious of is that I am not a working jazz musician. I don't make my living out of jazz. I go to a lot of gigs, buy a lot of albums, etc. But here I was almost stealing the limelight in terms of press and social media, releasing music that had been originally released nearly 50 years ago. And I definitely sympathize or empathize if I am an active working musician, composer uh, today, and I'm trying to get people to go to my gigs or buy my albums or whatever, uh, or book me to play gigs, I probably would feel, I, I would definitely have mixed feelings about it. Because mm-hmm. as you say, that was then, this is now. So, and, 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 and I'm not saying there's a right or wrong there, but I definitely see that point. I definitely see that point. Okay. Will your labor be signing more Irish talent in the future? Well, that's a, that's a, so that's a really good question. So, you know, as you know, jazz is a small budget, small audience business by and large. 
And how this project started off, we barely had a budget to release one album. Uh, but it turned out, and, and the real question was, did anybody care? So, which, which is your point about reissue. So I spent probably 2,000 hours over late 21, mint 22, getting remastered, new artwork, sleeve notes, da 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 to get the album out. And the real question was, does anyone, give, does anyone care? Does anyone give a damn? So what we did find out in February was that people really did. So let me talk about Louis Stewart just a little bit. Yeah. So Louis Stewart, born in Ireland, uh, based in Ireland, but had a pretty good international career. <clears throat> and and he, um, in, in the 70s, he went from being unknown to suddenly winning awards at the Montreux Jazz Festival in 1968, having the limelight put upon him and then booked to play in major bands. So he went and toured with George Shearing, went and toured with the Benny Goodman band at the time. But most importantly, he ended up in, L in London with a band led by a saxophonist and a vibes player called Tubby Hayes. And Tubby Hayes, Hayes was probably the most modern, progressive and prolific musician at the time in London. His lifestyle got the better of him and he didn't make it out of his 30s. So the other guy that he w went to work with was Ronnie Scott, Ronnie Scott of the Ronnie Scott Jazz Club, which is the major jazz club in, in the UK, if not, if not in Europe. In one there, of them. Yes. So, so, so Louis went from playing bars and small gigs in Dublin to within a matter of months, he was playing with the best guys who walked through the door on Ronnie Scott's every night of the week. Uh, so... And that had never happened with an Irish jazz musician before. So it's kind of like being a, a, a successful sports guy playing in lower leagues. And then you get identified and picked up. And next thing, you're on the big team. So when you, when you come from a small city in a small country on the west of Europe, like Ireland is, like I, and in the mid-70s, I'm talking about a population of two and a half million, maybe leaning towards three million in a country that's, dominated by conservative Catholicism and has got political problems in the north of Ireland where people are shooting each other and blowing each other up for, for you know, da-da-da. To have one of your local guys suddenly be playing in the major leagues in jazz was a huge thing. So Lou Stewart is and was at that time the biggest thing that ever happened in the music in Ireland. So the point was getting this record out was important because when the guy who set up the label had died and when Louis had died, and that's how he's known here in the same way as Louis Armstrong, we might be just known or Miles might just known by their first name in Ireland, in jazz terms, you talk about Louis, people know you're talking about Louis Stewart. Mm -hmm. So he, um, he really had to be the focus of a lot of attention. And then when the album came out, people realized that you could be a world-class jazz musician. You could play with the best. You could make a real living out of it. You could make proper recordings and you could tour with the best in the world. So that's why Louis is important. He is the role model of what is possible um, if you do all your work and you get a bit of luck in this business. And it had never happened before. And it's happened to a much lesser degree with a handful of musicians since then from Ireland. So he still is the 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 exemplar of what you can do with what we all know is a niche music and a not a very popular music in the grand scheme of things. Okay. So what happened to him? 
So what happened to him is he, uh, he, he, he was prolifically recorded and toured a lot in the 70s and the 80s. He decided for family reasons and maybe for, you know, economic reasons to base himself in Ireland. And then he kind of, I'd say he, he settled a little bit and he became just a really, really, really good mainstream guitarist that visiting players knew about, <clears throat> you know, Tal Farlow or... Zoot Sims or any of those guys who we would have played with all wanted to play with Louis. And he continued to have a career around Europe. You know, he would have he would have played a lot in Scandinavia and Germany and France and, and he did the occasional gig in the States. Um, some people would think that he uh, missed the opportunity that he had, uh, but maybe his youthful energy or his enthusiasm waned a bit and he decided he wanted a bit of work-life balance. I I don't know exactly, okay. but but he uh, he passed away in 2016, um, and you know it was national news. It was absolutely national news. Okay. You know? So why didn't the second album get released? Well, that's a really good question, and nobody knows the answer to that question. So, so the the, the guy who set up the the, the label was a, a contemporary impressionist artist called Gerald Davis, who is a theater entrepreneur and a big jazz fan. And he set up the label because when he saw how how powerful and how impressive Louis was, but he wasn't being recorded in his own country, he thought that needed to be fixed. So he established the label to record Louis. So we know that Some Other Blues was recorded about six months after the first album. And we also know that there's another album that was recorded around the same time. So he went back to the same studio and recorded with other local musicians. Was it not released because it was too soon after some... Uh, out on its own. Was it not released because one of the artists wasn't happy with some small aspect of the recording? Um, if, if, they, if there were, nobody knows what that aspect was because the reception to the album before we released it and we began to circulate it with some of the more serious music heads in Dublin to get their view on it was, this is astounding. We don't know why this hasn't gone out. It would be a travesty if it doesn't go out. So, and, and and maybe it was budget. Who knows? I like so both guys are dead. Gerald is no, dead. Lewis is dead. Both are so, dead. This is, yeah. It's like I said. Uh, trust me, I did love the album. Okay, Great. I do want you to release it. It's just that I have the more fear of this. One or two things could happen from this. A, it could help project Irish jazz, which would be good. Yeah. yeah. Or it could help suppress it. For for younger players, yes, yeah, yeah. No, that could that could be the case, and I I certainly hope that's not the case. And it certainly, if I if I actually thought that that was going to be a certainty, I probably wouldn't do it, because because I would rather go and see live music than buy records, buy buy legacy records. But so so Louis Louis spawned a whole kind of generation of players. And they have spawned a new generation of players. And like everywhere else in the world, the older guys learned by themselves. And the younger guys did a combination of that and probably did some college stuff. And the newer generation, they do it as a as an undergraduate course or a postgraduate course, which we all know has its pros and cons, right? So, <laughs> so, um, so, and to get back to your original question, will we put new artists out on the label? I would love to do that. I would love to do that. I mean, I am a passionate believer in artists not just uh, playing their trade in the clubs and the, on the stage. I think if they want to have a legacy, if they want to be better known, they have to be recorded. The recordings have to be 
packaged well and they have to be promoted well so that that artist has got an opportunity to be heard and recognized elsewhere. You can be playing seven nights a week in your own hometown or in the uh, local towns, but no one's going to ever book you to play in London or Paris or New York unless they happen to identify you in the flesh. But if they don't identify you in the flesh, why not identify a recording? And we all know how easy it is to, you know, share media these days. So uh, I would love to do that. And there are some, uh, there's a couple of musicians at the very least that I would be very happy uh, if the right project came along to put them out. So for sure. Okay. So are you transfer how just more for me. So when you said you had to get them remastered, what, what were they recorded in? What format? So, uh, so mainly I have quarter inch tapes and I have some two inch tapes. So dang. Okay. So, so just, just, just like two feet to my right here Uh are about eight crates of 1970s analog tape. Okay. And you digitalize them also. So are you going to put them up on the streaming sites also, or is it going to be an album for sale? Well, uh, so, so, so yes and yes. So currently they're not on the streaming sites. So, my approach to this was very cautious. Uh, in fact, when I first engaged with the family who owned the assets for this label, um, I said, wouldn't it be great if we could put this album out again? And they said, yeah, wouldn't it be great? And I said, my only criteria is it has to be done well and I don't want to lose money. So, right? Because I can't afford to be, like I, I'm not a, I'm a wealthy guy who can just be a patron of a, of a reactivated jazz label and doesn't matter what it costs. So, so that's a, so that's one way of saying yes we will put them out on streaming services because streaming services are pervasive and it's where a lot of people only consume their music however i didn't want to bite the hand that feeds the the process um of producing the actual physical albums as as you know uh you know probably 20 or 25 percent of press be they reviewers or djs still want physical they still want a physical uh asset they want a tangible thing um so you know okay but that was one of, that, that was one of the reasons My I went out and see thing that i tell anyone that's young and starting an album don't expect a return yeah yeah expect and, to and lose I, most of the yeah. money yeah and, and that's true and as the as the jazz correspondent in the irish times said to me he said every, every irish jazz musician has got 500 cds under their bed <laughs> right and and <laughs> That's a really that's another real statement. I give him that. <laughs> yeah, it is true. It is true. So so my role in this, so I'm a music fan, I'm not a musician. I've got two saxophones sitting over there that I hardly touch. But um I do passionately believe that if you're gonna make a recording, you need to put it out in the right way. And you need to, to make people aware of it, and you need to understand how radio and and press and bloggers consume music or, or become aware of music and you have to you have to push that now so a, a lot of musicians understand composing and playing and improvising but they don't understand anything about business or they don't understand anything about pr and they might find it distasteful so if we achieve anything apart from reissuing some very important recordings i hope that um through a little bit of reputation of one of being a reasonable human being and two of having some modest success that we will actually be able to help other people to get their their work known 
so that's kind of where I'm coming from. Um, and just when we talk about formats, the other f- fascinating thing is before I put anything out, the biggest, uh, most frequent debate that I would have had with people is vinyl versus CD or vinyl versus streaming. Because there's a whole cohort of the world who believes that if it's not on vinyl, it doesn't matter. Um, I can't speak for Europe, but I know a lot of artists over here who bought that lie. Yeah. Like, I got to print it on vinyl or are people going to buy it? Yeah. No, nah, didn't happen. Yeah. So, and, and, and that's, and, and, and as we know, vinyl takes three, four, five times as long to produce. It takes, costs four or five times uh, uh, much money to, to produce. But when I went in, and, and this wasn't my intention, I intended that to sell direct, you know, online e-business style and, and do streaming. But I walked into the biggest uh, record store in Dublin uh, and said, uh, I've done this and here's the review. Would you guys like to take a few copies? And they go, yeah, yeah, we'll take some copies. And, and they said, do you have vinyl? <laughs> and I go, well, no, I don't have vinyl, but maybe I'll have vinyl. So if I had vinyl, how much more would you take? And they said between three and five times as much, right? Okay. So that, that record store uh, came back to me three times to reorder. So they've sold about a third of my units. Uh, and they still ask me about vinyl. So we probably are going to do vinyl because the record stores seem to be, and I know it's not exactly hard science market research, but they seem to say vinyl is where it's at for the record buying public at the moment. So we'll see. Okay. Like I said, that's a completely different country. I don't know much about that side of the world. It's, well, it's you know, I mean, it, so you know, and it's it's not just in Ireland. Like, like I, I I used to travel a lot for work, and one of the pleasures I'd have is the time that that I wasn't working, uh, and I had to kill time before I went to an airport or whatever. And I walked the streets to find the record stores, yes. and preferably, you'd, preferably you'd, you'd find the ones that, you know, were the niche ones or the groovy ones that you wouldn't see at home, and and they used to be CD. Uh, when I was doing all that traveling, and now most of those record stores, if they're still around are probably 70 or 80% vinyl. So, you know, the CDs are down the back. <laughs> so it's a, it's an interesting thing. And some people are now putting stuff out on cassette again, believe it or not. I don't think I have a cassette player anymore. Well, you might need to have one if you're going to be cool in a few years' time. Yeah, cool years <laughs> time. <laughs> okay, fair. Like I said, I can acknowledge I don't know everything so I gotta go with you on that all I could say is that I know a lot of people over here who have yep. printed vinyl with the hopes of selling them because they bought into that hype and that was a big mistake yeah 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 yeah, yeah. no I, I, I agree I agree um it seems to be an age-related thing uh, who knows but I, mean, I think your target are... audience people I mean the people who are buying this album were they like 20 when he was performing it seems to be wide range. So there definitely are, if you like, the legacy audience who used to have it, want it again, or want a new version because it's remastered and it's got extra notes and photographs, a few extra tracks. But there are other people who are buying it who knew nothing about them. So essentially, we've got the Irish market. Everyone knows Louis. Then we've got the UK and European market. Maybe some of them know Louis. And then the American market, where by and large people didn't know Louis from a hole in the wall. So the most common feedback that we get f- through our PR partner is, 
wow, this is really good. Never heard of this guy. How come we never heard of this guy? And and the other comment, which is a bit patronizing, but is also understandable, is jazz, Ireland. <laughs> I mean, yeah. that was literally what I was thinking. Yeah, yeah. Now, if you want to talk about footballers and a whole bunch of other stuff, yes, I could tell you a lot of great ones yeah. that came from there. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So then, what is your approach to compete with the guitars here, though? Especially since he can't perform. Yeah, well, that is a, that is a, that is an issue. So, I wouldn't say compete is what I'm trying to do. What I'm trying to do is raise the profile and make jazz fans and particularly anybody who's interested in, in, in guitar or anybody who's interested in that kind of mainstream to bebop frame that he fits into, um, to make it people aware that it wasn't just Tal Farlow and Wes Montgomery and Barney Kessel and whatever, that there was another guy. So all of those guys knew him, right? Uh, like uh, a lot of them came to play with him. He would have played with a lot of them at the used to be a really good jazz festival in Ireland. It's not so good anymore, but they used to all come to see him. So I, I'm not really out to convert people. I, what I'm out to do for distant markets like the like like North America is to get them written about and get them played, and then the discerning listener who might by chance manage to hear that ten minutes of the show or happen to read that review will go, wow. Maybe I should check this guy out, and 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 what we're finding is sixty uh, percent of the sales roughly are in Ireland, about twenty five percent roughly in the UK, and about fifteen percent are coming from North America. So we've had some success, um, and if we had bigger budgets, we we and we could spend you know we could spend ten times as much on the PR in the states. Maybe we might sell twice or three times as many albums. Who knows? Who knows? Okay. So. So the next question I wish to ask you, okay? So you never played an instrument at that level, but never. then you want to reissue and produce an album. Yeah. You don't see anything weird with that? Because now you're competing with the producers that are established. Like, I can name a whole bunch of them. For yeah. I mean, it's an interesting point, but it's not a closed shop, right? So let, I let agree me... on that. No, I 100% agree on that. So, so let me tell you how this started. So we all remember lockdown and COVID, right? Mm -hmm. Life is very limited. And I, I live near the sea. I was walking on a local beach with a friend of mine just about 18 months ago. And I was I happened to talk about this album, the, this, the solo uh, guitar album. And I was saying, isn't it a pity that this is one of the best jazz albums that ever was produced in Ireland and you can't get it? If you're lucky, you might get one on, a, on an auction site. And he said, why don't you find out where the masters are? And I just, you know, I scoffed at him and used some common profanity. And uh, and then, I, you know, I was like, what do you, you're like, just forget it. You know, just totally discounted the idea. And about two months later, I'm sitting here doing my day job. I'm thinking, you know, maybe, doesn't that be an interesting idea? And I did a little bit of Googling and found out that the late um, owner of the label, his wife was still alive. And I delicately composed an email and said, uh, yeah, I don't know whatever happened to those Livia masters and do you know where they are? A week later, I'm talking to her son and we have a similar conversation. And I question was, do you have the masters? Yeah. Do you have the rights? Yeah. Do you know where the masters are? Not sure. Would you be interested in trying to find out? Yeah. So that's literally how this thing started. It was like one little baby step of, a, of an idea and then led to another thing, led to another thing. And then... 
six weeks later, I'm putting the, the tapes in the back of my car because we've agreed that I'll take them away and catalog what we think is there. That we're in a lockup for 15 years. And then, uh, then we realized that not only what we thought should be there was there, but there was all this other stuff as well. So then I thought, okay, well, we, the only way we know if these boxes are telling the truth is to take some of them and get them digitized. And then we see if the tapes are any good. So we did that. The tapes are fine. The, the, the files are great. <laughs> uh, and what's more, there's other stuff there. So it, it kind of then just grew like, okay, so now we know what the masses are. Now we know the tapes are good. Now we know we could actually put this thing out. And and no one else was doing it. And no one else... Where did the uh, budget come from? So that's a good question. You know, it's great when you don't have the money and then the money comes to you. So what happened was I, I turned around to the family and said, okay, we, we've now digitized tapes that represent two potential releases and they're good. So the next question is, what are we going to do about it? Um, you know, if we had a little bit of money, we could actually go and produce a small volume of CDs and then we'd find out if anybody cares. And we might pull in a few favors on artwork or whatever. So the three offspring of the lace Gerald Davis, the guy who owned the label, each agreed to put up 500 euros. That's it. And, and they said, if you can do this, this is amazing. And we always wanted to do this, but we don't have the time. And we think what you've done is amazing. So would you just keep doing what you're doing? And I knew the 1500 would, might get us to the edge. And then I thought, well, if necessary, I might put in a little bit of my own money and see how it goes. Anyway, a few months later, I'm talking to a friend of mine I hadn't seen since before COVID. And uh, I tell her the story and I said, listen, I'm not going to even bother you with the details. I'm going to send you a document that I put together, which is kind of like a proto business plan of what's there, what could be done, what it would cost, which was something that I put together hoping someday I'd meet somebody who had the money and maybe would be interested. And um, she had recently inherited some money from her aunt. <laughs> okay. And, and the next day she says, I'm going to give you 10 grand. It's like, what? She said, I'm going to give you 10 grand. And I said, no, no, you, you don't understand. You're not lending me 10 grand. You're not investing 10 grand. It's like, you have to give me 10 grand because I can't guarantee you'd ever see that money ever again. And I had a similar experience with a, the, a local arts officer who works for the city here, for the city, um, city council. Went in to talk to him and he said, oh, that's not really the kind of thing that we do. And I said, I'll tell you what, I'll send you this document so you, so you can read it. I won't waste any more of your time. Next day, he gave me three and a half grand. So we went from 1,500 to 15,000 in a space of a, a few weeks, basically. Okay. So it was like, it's like, wow, now we can really do this. And in fact, we can do more than one. We can probably do two, maybe three. Um, so it kind of evolved. And I, I don't think I'm putting anyone out of a job. <clears throat> there was a guy who, who contacted me when he heard what I was doing. And he worked for a distributor slash label. And he wanted me to do another of the albums. And when it came down to looking at commercials, he wanted to give me about 10% and he was going to take the rest and he wouldn't give me any figures in terms of projections or whatever, 10% of what. And I thought, no, I can do, I can do this. I can do this. You know, I, and, and my background, just to put it in context, my background is I, I, I worked in technology, but mainly in digital media. So I understood what's involved in processing analog to digital and putting digital stuff out in different formats. 
And uh, so I thought, no, I can do this. So, okay, okay, okay. So, I'm not saying I wanted to fail. Hope it does well. But if you're producing the next artist, you're not gonna. Do you think you're actually gonna get grants like that again? Uh, well, so that's an interesting question. So there is a body in Ireland called the Arts Council, and their job is to support what they consider to be appropriate, worthy, viable arts projects, ranging from theatre to music to visual arts, sculpture, etc., etc. <clears throat> and they they also gave me some money uh, for a third album that you don't know about yet. Uh, um, and if you are an artist and you go through, now it is an arduous process to fill out the forms and do all the budgets, etc., etc. But if you do that, you can get money to put on touring uh, events, to put on uh, recordings uh, for composition. So if I was working with an artist and they said, we want to do some new stuff and da 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 and they didn't have any money, it's unlikely that I would fund it unless, unless they were looking for a very modest amount of money, but I would certainly encourage them and support them trying to get the money. Uh, so... That kind of answers your question. Okay. So this whole process, I assume it wasn't all smooth sailing in general. What was the most difficult thing that you faced? There was two of the most, well, so three. Initially, where are we going to get the money? Mm -hmm. Right. You explained and that, that one. That, kind of, that problem kind of solved, got solved so easily. I mean, I'm thinking, wow, that was really easy. The next one was the guy who was doing the mastering, the remastering, of the first two albums is a, a tremendous saxophone player. His name is Michael Buckley. He, he's played with the Mingus big band several times. And he also runs a studio and he does production and he writes music and he plays parts on other people's work and he does everything. And he is the busiest fucking musician in the, in the country by a country mile, I'd say. And he's a lovely guy. And there's no doubt he can do it and he's highly recommended. But the most difficult thing was actually getting the masters out of him because he would always, particularly post-COVID, he would not turn down anything that came his way. Like I, I spoke to him one day when I was patiently waiting the overdue first draft. And uh, I said, oh, Michael, like, I don't want to put you under any pressure or anything. But, you know, we did say we'd have it three or four weeks ago and you know any chance we get it by next weekend and and he and he said yeah very busy very busy he said i'm doing five gigs tomorrow you know so that was the most difficult thing was balancing my patience from the actual elapsed time it should take to get the masters out of him and and that's with the greatest respect to this man right he did a fantastic job and then the other most difficult thing i had to do was for the second album was to find the get the right image for the cover because there was no suitable existing artwork or suitable photograph from the right period of the two musicians. So it nearly tore my hair out. I went through about six concepts and, and it was one of those, uh, I know the right thing when I see it, but you know, it was like five attempts at, oh, that's not it. That's not it. So like in terms of complexity that those problems were not actually big problems. Um, the degree of goodwill, enthusiasm, love, endorsement, support uh, I got I'll, when I started to talk to anybody about this project was actually overwhelming. It is probably one of the most human rewarding experiences I've had for 
couple of years you know so okay so outside of ireland how has the press been receiving it positive negative what extremely positive okay i mean extremely positively one of the one of the catalytic moments for the first release was maybe about uh, 14 months ago when we knew that the tapes had digitized and the potential was to release this record i contacted the guys the irish times jazz correspondent and i said to him this is what i'm doing if we get to the finish line do you think you'd review this because i mean he is dead and it is nearly 50 years ago and he goes what would I review it? He says, this is the most important thing that's come my way in a long time. I'd write a feature on it, right? So he wrote a full-page feature on So that got... Oh, uh, he also blog wrote or like a newspaper? No, in the newspaper, okay. in, the news, in the national newspaper. And he also wrote sleeve notes and he enthusiastically endorsed the project left, right, and center. Okay. Now, through my, through my uh, you know, part-time radio work, I also get a lot of really good material from a guy who's based in, in Edinburgh in Scotland and and I really liked him and I contacted him and said Rob you know we're kind of thinking of doing this do you think you'd be able to help us out yeah no problem do you think anyone's going to care yeah they're going to care Louis Silva's name is strong in the UK and what's more he did the first album's PR for free so, man, we, we were just like... The, the, yeah, you the, keep that the, to yourself because that pissed off a lot of people over here. Yeah. So, anyhow, so, um, so to answer your question, did we get... Yeah, we got great press. We got unbelievable press in, in Ireland. We got national newspaper, national radio. Uh, you know, it was like a major event for the first half. And then we got lots of coverage in the UK, mainly in the jazz bloggers and reviewers space we got lots of good radio play not just the, the the local radio stations but in the bbc in jazz fm and then i thought we'd get good coverage in scandinavia but we didn't because louis recorded several albums in scandinavia in in norway but we got really good coverage in france uh the french one of the major french radio stations to the feature they had some recordings of him playing in a club in paris Got lots of orders out of France. And uh, in the US, we didn't get any big coverage, but we got covered by a lot of the bloggers. Uh, we got we got national radio play. And, you know, like the radio landscape in the States is very fragmented in comparison to, to Europe. Like, like in Britain, you have the BBC. Uh, that's a whole yeah. that's a whole thing that I also go on rants on. But yes, I agree yeah. with you. Yes. So it's much harder. Um so currently, there's somebody on our list who has taken the second album, has expressed an interest, and does an NPR show. So that's kind of what we're hoping is that somebody at that level might pick it up and, and maybe we might get some play, maybe get an interview, who knows. So so um, we've also got orders, and I don't know how they found out. I've sent, I've sent uh, to Australia, to Taiwan, to Japan, to India, <coughs> far-flown places that I made no effort and had no contacts in. So I guess word about social media, uh, guitar nuts, who who knows? But you know, it's got it's got some legs. Let's put it this way. Uh, we have exceeded my expectations um in terms of coverage and in terms of financial uh in, in terms of income. Now it's still very small beans, but uh, it's extremely encouraging. Extremely encouraging. Okay. So when does it officially come out, the second one over here? 
indices. So it's officially out now. It's officially oh, out now. 26th of May. 26th I am sorry. Of May. That's okay, man. That's okay. That's okay. That's okay. 26th of May. 26th of May. So, <clears throat> um, but you know, the States, you know, obviously it's the biggest homogenous potential jazz audience in the world. Mm-hmm. As we as we know, it's a very diverse country, very diverse attitudes, very diverse tastes. And uh, so it's hard for me to really get a side of it. Like I see we're getting radio plays in <clears throat> in in big cities on the east coast and big cities on the west coast and places like Nebraska and Kansas and Oklahoma and I go, wow, that's really interesting. I wonder, you know, how many people are driving around in their cars or sitting in their kitchens listening to late night radio shows, jazz shows, whatever, in Nebraska or in Oklahoma or Kansas. I don't know. Um but <clears throat> I, I do think that there is a bit of a kind of a drip effect. And that is the first album got some attention. The second album was well received and welcomed by those who got the first album. Lots of the feedback was, oh yeah, the first album was really good. Yeah, we'd love to hear the second one, even though it came only a few months later. Um, so what that translates into in terms of numbers or sales or numbers of listeners, it's really hard to tell. It's really hard to tell. So. Like I said, if you break even, you're doing better than 80% of the jazz artists. Yeah. I okay. Know, I know. Yeah. No problem yeah. on that. Okay. So now, the next album, the next album, I'll give you a preview without telling you too much, but the next album, I think, I hope, has got more uh, interest in the kind of harder core jazz community. Like the, the solo album is definitely a jazz album, but it's very accessible. Yes. Short tracks, standards, beautifully played, crystal clear. There's nothing difficult about it. Uh, the second album is more of a jazz heads record. Two improvisers going at it longer tracks, you know. And if it was your first intro to jazz, you might go, what is that guy doing? What's that piano player doing? I don't understand. The third album, which is going to come out late this year, is a recording of Louis Stewart with Jim Hall. There was one of the surprises in the box when we look at the archives. It goes, what? Jim Hall? <laughs> okay. So, um, so it's a live recording. And we're currently, uh, you know, kind of at track order, track selection stage. You know, uh, we're going to put it out on vinyl. This is the one that the Arts Council gave me some money for. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's why it's going out on vinyl and CD. So there's going to be a vinyl, single vinyl version followed by a, a CD version which will have some extra tracks on it, you know, that kind of model. So, but, and the story for that one is, without giving too much away, is that Jim Hall was on holidays in Ireland in 1982 at Christmas. It became known. Um, and Louis Stewart and Gerald Davis said, hey, Jim, how about we do a gig together the day after Christmas? Literally the, the following day. Unboxing day, okay. Unboxing day. And uh, and I've got the tapes. Okay. I would definitely be interested in that one. Yeah. Okay, just a few other things before I let you go. Okay. So this whole process, what is something you hate about the jazz community after doing this? 
Well, that's an interesting question. I have to answer that one very diplomatically. Ah, oh, so, don't be PC <laughs> on me. So, what is the thing I hate most about the jazz community about this process? Well, I guess there's two things, and I think hate would be too strong a word. And you know, it's let's call it disappointed or frustrated, right? So, number one is, um, everybody in Ireland who played with them has got a Louis story. And, and some of them are funny. He had a really good dry sense of humor. It's guys like a lot of musicians, right? But also, a lot of them have the negative story, you know, you know, the, the chip on the shoulder story, like, uh, yeah, I used to like him, but he was, he did this, or he said that, or that. And some of them have never got over it. Uh, and I think yeah, that's a pity. I understand that part. Some of these guys, I know. <laughs> it's like, I think that's a pity because uh, by association, they would have benefited and learned. Maybe some of the things they learned they didn't like. Uh, so I think that's a pity. And that's kind of human nature uh, to some degree. Um, the other thing, I suppose, that I would be f a little bit frustrated is that some of the stereotypes of some people in the jazz community is true. But you could say that in business as well. So, you know, there's a tendency to think of the jazz musician being very cool and laid back and thinks about late night and his rest of his life is chaos. You know, that's that's a stereotype, right? <clears throat> and as a stereotype that says people in business will wear suits and, you know, drink lots of coffee and go up at seven in the morning, go to the gym, work 10 hours a day, they're really on it, you know. And, and that's not entirely true either. <clears throat> but there is a benefit of been able to combine elements of that. So I think that there are definitely some parts of the jazz community, and you could probably say to maybe about musicians, is that they sometimes are not their best friend. They may be really, really good artists or performers, but they also either don't understand or don't realize or don't value that there's other things that are important as well. And so all, okay. all people can't be all things. And, and, and if I was to, if I was to make any kind of wish for myself, and that is that, that I do this well, that it's modestly successful, and it demonstrates that there is value in taking a particular approach to help and raise the profile of music and musicians. So, okay. If you could change one thing about American jazz radio, what would you change? Hmm. That's a good question. Well, I mean, like, again, that's a big, a big. So here's here's what I think, right? <clears throat> At the risk of not offending anybody. No, offend them. Trust me, they're, they're good. They can handle it. I, I think, I think an awful lot of the jazz that you hear on radio, an awful lot of it, is what somebody once described in a song as coffee shop jazz, meaning it's accessible, it's easy. Uh, it's clink, clinky cocktails in the background. And um, that's not where it started. And that's not where it develops. But that's there's a, definitely a comfortable level of I'm a jazz fan where that's as far as it goes. You know, I like a torch singer doing the standards or I like somebody who plays a sweet solo and I don't like anyone infringing on my uh, consciousness too much. Uh, and I think that's a problem. And it's not just about... American jazz, but I hear it more. I used, I used to travel a lot and I was in the States a lot and I used to find myself in a hotel room going, 
God, the TV's wogeous over here and the radio's crap. Unless you can find the local station who's playing NPR or syndicating something like that. So I used to, before the internet, before reliable streaming, I used to bring my own radio and try to find the, the, the radio station. Uh, and an awful lot of it was like that. But there is some, ex without doubt, uh, exceptional, wonderful stuff. So, but, uh, but a, a lot of people think that jazz is kind of a comfortable sound and it doesn't, uh, to, to me, what makes it really exciting is, is, is that it's exciting and it's, uh, it's on the edge of your seat and it might bring you places that you didn't expect to go. And sometimes you might be going into a dark alley or uh, a skydive and you're not sure where it's going to end, but then it does. And, and it's just a thrill. So I'd like to hear more of that, you know, um, the, 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 the name of my radio show I inherited, it's not my own name, it's, it's, it's The Night Train, which is a fairly generic show. But there was, a, 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 a when I first pitched to do the show on a station I'm on, I wanted to call the, the show Rhythm and Beauty, right? And, 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 the, and the whole idea really was that good music can be terrifying, exciting, uh, challenging, but it can also be really beautiful. And and often the the best jazz performance is where you get both of those things, you know. Um, so there's a long answer to your question. Okay, no problem, man. I'm not gonna beat up on you much anymore on this, or go as hard okay. as I normally would. Can you tell okay. the people how to contact you, where to find the album, all that stuff? Okay, all right. So LiviaRecords.com, L-I-V-I-A Records.com. Livia, by the way is influenced by James Joyce, who was also Irish. And the guy who set up the radio station was a big Joyce uh, enthusiast. So LiviaRecords.com, Bandcamp. Find Livia Records on Bandcamp. And if you want to contact me, you can contact me at Dermot, D-E-R-M-O-T, at LiviaRecords.com. And uh, if you are listening to this in Ireland, <laughs> by any chance, uh, Tower Records still exists in Ireland. Uh, Spin Dizzy Records still exists in Ireland. Music Zone, they're the places <laughs> where you can buy the physical product. So, I think the last time I saw Tower Records was in Japan, but okay, that's cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I think the local staff bought it out here or something, but they, you know, it's, it's still the place where you can go and buy a wide range of music that is not just, you know, the charts. So, okay. Well, thank you for joining us, sir. means a lot. And everyone, thank you. This is Leander from Improv Exchange. Thank you, and have a good one. Good night. Thank you. That's that on jazz. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Improv Exchange. Please subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Also, please be sure to follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Improv Exchange.